Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Job. We'll be looking at chapter 19. There's some suspicious looking characters walking down the aisles that have a Bible for you if you didn't bring one. Some are more suspicious than others. (laughs) But you can take this from them. And the Bible should be marked at Job chapter 19. We'll read from Job chapter 19 here in a little bit. As I was looking for a way to introduce the sermon this week, I found uh, inspiration, if you will, in an unlikely place. I found it from Pat Robertson, the host of the 700 Club. (laughs) I never thought I'd say that, (laughs) but I did. As you know, uh, the world around us uh, is still reeling from the tragedy that has struck Haiti. Uh, Unless you are not connected at all, you're aware that there was a huge earthquake there that has brought devastation to that country. And Pat Robertson decided that he was going to blame the tragedy on something. Pat Robertson said in some sort of interview, the tragedy happened quote, a long time ago in Haiti, and people might not want to talk about it. He went on to say that the Haitians were under the heel of the French, you know, Napoleon III and whatever. And they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you will get us free from the French. True story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. End quote. The Haitians did obtain their freedom from the French, beginning of the 1800s. But Robertson went on to say, you know, the Haitians revolted and got themselves free. But ever since, they have been cursed by one thing after the other. What do you think about a statement like that? Robertson caught a lot of flack for it. As well he should have. This isn't the first time he's made proclamations like this, nor is it the first time that evangelical leaders in general have made connections like the one that Robertson made. Hurricane Katrina was blamed on the people of New Orleans. The Twin Towers and the tragedy of 9-11 was blamed on American culture in general for supporting abortion and a variety of other societal ills. Nothing, it's nothing new to try to draw a straight line between the negative circumstances that we see in the world around us and some sort of punishment that the people in those circumstances have brought on themselves. <clears throat> the problem, though, with all these kinds of statements is that the people that make them are standing in the place of God, speaking for God, where he has not. That is a very dangerous position to put oneself in. Just ask Job's friends. 
Comments like Robertson's directed Southern Seminary President Al Mohler to ask this question then in a recent column. Does God hate Haiti? And he went on to answer the question this way. We can trace the effects of a drunk driver to a car accident. But we cannot trace the effects of voodoo to an earthquake, at least not so directly. The earthquake in Haiti, like every other earthly disaster, reminds us that creation groans under the weight of sin and the judgment of God. This is true for every cell in our bodies, even as it is for the crust of the earth at every point in the globe. Moeller is right. We can't draw a direct line like that. The entire creation groans, the Bible says, under the effects of the curse. And what's true for the earth's crust and shifting plates that bring down cities is true for us as well. All of us in this room have personally experienced suffering to one degree or another. We've lost things. We've lost jobs. We've lost people. We've lost friends. We've lost family. We've all lost. We have been hurt. We are sick. Or we have loved ones who are watching experience those things. Suffering is all around us and we can't get away from it. And so we do what Robertson does sometimes. We try to draw that straight line of cause and effect, sin and punishment, to try to make sense of what's going on in our lives or in the the lives of those who love us. But honestly, more often than not, there isn't a straight line of connection to make. It just isn't there. Muller said you can draw a line, you can see the cause and effect of a person who is driving drunk and hurts him or herself or others. You can see it there. But everything else, we don't get to see that line of cause and effect. It's a mystery to us. We don't know why the particular person or ourselves is going through the suffering. We just don't have an answer. And when we aren't able to make sense of it, it leads us, I think, sometimes to ask questions like this. If I can't figure out what I've done, we say to God, God, what did I ever do to you? What have I done to deserve this? I mean, was I that bad of a person? Did I tick you off that much that you've let this happen in my life? Because we've got this moral equation in our minds. Bad things happen to people who do bad things. And good things should happen to people who do good things. And that's just the way it works, right? I've been a pretty good person. I've done basically the right stuff. I don't deserve this. The equation isn't evening out. We see people in the Bible struggle with that very question. We see it in the Psalms. One person says in Psalm 73, there's a verse in Psalm 73, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure 
in vain or for nothing. In vain or for nothing I have washed my hands in innocence. Okay, this is a struggle that people, the people of God throughout the ages have wrestled with. You know, I'm doing good stuff, basically. I mean, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I've got sin in my life. I know that. But, you know, what gives? And I look at that guy or that girl over there, and I look at what they're doing, and frankly, I'm envious of them. They're wicked. They're not trying to, they're not trying to keep their nose clean. They're not trying to keep their hands clean like I am, and it looks like it's working out. The questions that we have all faced, these are the kinds of questions that a man named Job wrestled through as well, which we're going to look at this morning. The book of Job is a chronicle of one man's wrestling through the, the problem and, and the doubt and everything that goes through suffering and wondering why. What I love about the book of Job is that it is is real, and at times it's raw. Job complains. He hurls some accusations at God. He says things that you and I have thought, probably, on several occasions, but would never admit. And yet, it's recorded for us in the Bible. That's what I love about Job. It's, this, it's the kind of stuff that you and I are struggling with and you, you may be struggling with right now even though when somebody walks by you at church and says, how's it going? You say, it's fine. I'm doing good. Let me give you a quick introduction to the book of Job before we look at the section of verses that, that we want to spend our time at this morning just so that you can get a feel for what's going on in the book and understand where we're going. Job is one of the poetic books of Scripture. It goes with Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And so, in your Bible, you notice that there's lots of line breaks and things there. That's because it's written in poetry. Almost the entirety of the book is poetic. That doesn't seem like poetry to us because the the lines don't rhyme, right? But it's poetry. One of the challenges of poetry and translating poetry, remember, this is written in Hebrew, not English. One of the challenges of, of, of translating poetry is getting it to be poetry in the other language. There's all sorts of poetic devices that are employed in Hebrew poetry that you've probably, if you've if taken any of the classes around here, how to get the most out of your Bible, you've seen some of those things. It is poetry. It doesn't look like it. It was written, its date and authorship are unknown. You can pull out commentaries that people have written on the Bible and they spend pages and pages and pages talking about who may have written it when. Honest truth is we don't know. But the book could have been written as many as 3,000 years ago. You know, you want to talk about ancient words that we're singing before? These are ancient words that are written. The structure of the book is fairly straightforward. The first two chapters contain a prologue that sets up everything that's going to take place in the book. And you've got to remember when you read those first two chapters, and some of you are very familiar with the book and some of you may not be, which is why I'm taking the time. But you've got to remember when you're reading the, the, the book that the first two chapters, Job isn't in on it. He doesn't know what's going on. But what happened is Job is this wealthy man. Chapter 1 and verse 3 says he's one of the wealthiest men in the East. I mean, Job has it all. He's got family, tons of family. He's got friends. 
He's got riches. He's got it all. He's wealthy. And on top of his wealthiness, he's also an extremely godly man. And so, I'm going to bring that equation up again. You do bad stuff, you get bad stuff. You do good stuff, you get good stuff. Satan goes to accuses Job before God and says, listen, the only reason he's a godly man is because you've given him all this stuff. If he didn't have all that, he'd be gone in a minute. And for reasons unknown to us, God allows Satan to afflict Job. And really, in the course of a day, Job loses everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. His wealth is completely wiped out. His children are killed. His health is taken from him. He goes from the guy who, who has it all to the guy who has nothing and is in such a miserable state that his wife, the only person left with him, says, Job, curse God and die. Just curse God and let that lightning bolt fly and just get it over with. That's what happens to Job. But Job doesn't do that. And chapters 3 through 27 record for us a dialogue between Job and three friends. I'm going to put friends in quotation marks. Three friends that come to try to help him. Job's problem in these chapters, chapters 3 to 27, he's got three Pat Robertsons in his life. Telling him, what, well, listen, there's got to be some connection to what's going on and what you've done. Go ahead and tell us, you know, we're still going to be your friends. Out with it. I mean, this just isn't the way it works. And they go back and forth. And each of them give two speeches. And Job gives each one of them a response. So friend one gives a speech. Job gives a response. Two, speech. Job's response. Three, speech, response. And then they do it all over again for like 24 chapters. And then chapters 28 to 37, Job gives another speech. There's another friend, a fourth friend that comes in, has some things to say. And then in chapters 38 and 40 to 42, God speaks. And what God says is very interesting. For... Those four or five chapters, God basically says this. Job, you've asked me all these questions. You've complained. Uh, you, you've, said all of these, you've said all these things to me. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Are you ready to listen? What God doesn't do is say, Job, here's what was going on. Um, we're going to write a book about you that people for thousands of years are going to read and it's going to be helpful to them. He didn't say, Job, I I did this to you so that you could trust in me. I did this so that you could, uh, so I could restore the fortune that you lost, which, which God eventually does in the last chapter. In fact, he restores it twofold. God doesn't give any of those reasons and God doesn't address the problems, quote unquote, the problem of evil. He doesn't try to do all of that. God says to Job, this is the amazing thing, where were you when I created the earth? Have you been to the depths of the sea and seen what's down there? Have you been to the farthest reaches of the universe and touched the Orion's belt? Do you know where I keep lightning? 
Do you know when I decide to pour out the jar that holds the rain when the earth gets dry? Do you know how the animal world works? Do you know any of that stuff? And he goes on and on and on for several chapters doing that. And finally Job says, okay, I don't know your ways. And I don't know why. And if you came here this morning for my introduction thinking that I was going to be able to explain to you why you are suffering or why it happens, the bottom line is I don't know. I don't have the answers. And Job didn't get the answers either. There are some things about the ways of God's administrating the world that are just too far beyond us for us to even comprehend. But what the book of Job does do for us is it illustrates the reality and the existence of what is called innocent suffering. By innocent, I don't mean that Job or anyone else is totally innocent. We're not sinful people. But there is a sense in which the suffering that we endure, that you endure in your life, and that is going on in the world around us, is simply the result of living in a world that has been cursed by sin. We live in a world that has been devastated by sin and effects. But it doesn't mean that the tri- every trial that comes into our life is the direct punishment of God, Him whacking you on the head from a misstep that you've made. The book of Job supports that. And rather than explaining all the whys and the hows and the reasons for why the world is the way it is, what I think Job helps us do as a person and what's recorded for us in Scripture is he, he helps us find a way through the suffering. Rather than being able to understand the suffering, he tells us the approach that we as believing people are supposed to to take when we encounter suffering. Job in chapter 19, and you can turn your attention to chapter 19 now, Job has been crying out for someone to take up his case for him. He says in verse 7, Though I cry, I've been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. Now remember, he's talking about God here. Look at verse 8. All the he's are referring to God. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He goes on to all these things that he feels that God has done to him. But then in a moment of clarity, in verses 25 to 27, he, reads the wor- he utters the words that I want us to read and consider this morning. Because in verse 25 of Job 19, he says, But I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed... Yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. These, this beautiful section of Scripture 
comes to us where Job has been, it's almost like Job has been tossed overboard in this suffering. And he's drowning in it. And he's trying to keep his head above water. But it seems like the wind and the waves, they just keep pushing him under. And he comes up for a breath. And when he comes up for a breath, he gains a little bit of perspective and utters these words that I think help us as believers approach suffering as well. And here's how I think they do that. First of all, believers are to approach suffering with faith. Believers are to approach suffering with faith. Job says, I know, dot, 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 certain things to be true. In the midst of this storm, this personal suffering that Job is going through, he has to walk away from his need to understand why. His suffering is inexplicable. He's done all of the right things. He's been a God-fearing man. The Bible says that he would even get up in the mornings and offer sacrifices on behalf of his children in case perhaps one of them had sinned and not confessed it to God. He was a God-fearing man. So how could this happen? He's got the formula. You do bad, you get bad. You do good, you get good. And it doesn't work. He's standing at the chalkboard and it doesn't add up and there's no way to make the equation fit. But what Job has to do He's read, we've read all these things that he said. He feels like God has done to him. He feels like he's been abandoned by God, like God is punishing him for no reason. What Job has to do is go by, by what he knows rather than what he feels. And when we encounter suffering, we have to do the same. We have to go with what we know to be true. And we have to choose to believe what we know to be true about God and about what he has revealed of himself to us in his word. We have to go with that rather than the way we feel. We have to not look at our circumstances at what appears to be the case. Rather than looking at what appears to be the case, we have to constantly remind ourselves of what we know to be true. And we sing songs about this. We sing One of the songs that we sing is, Blessed Be Your Name. And it's that one of the lines in Blessed Be Your Name is, My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Did you know that that's from Job? Job said that. It's, it's a biblical line. And what we have to do when we approach suffering and trials is we have to approach them with the eyes of faith and concentrate on what we know to be true and not what appears to be true when the world is crumbling around us. What makes this point, point that I'm trying to make to you so important is that this is precisely where people so often lose their faith. They encounter difficulty. Instead of turning to faith, they turn away from it. They look to everything but faith. The reasoning goes something like this. In my conception of the world, this shouldn't happen. It violates my sense of justice or fairness. And when that happens, I have to reevaluate my concept of God. When we start reevaluating our concept of God, 
There are a couple of different approaches. Some people stop believing in God altogether. Because if God existed, this certainly wouldn't have happened. This is the approach. This, this approach is given in songs that play on the radio. So, you know Sarah McLaughlin, the woman that's in all the pet commercials with the sad dogs? <laughs> She's got this song that takes this approach. And here's what she says. The hurt I see helps to compound that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is just somebody's unholy hoax. And if you're up there, you'd perceive that my heart's here upon my sleeve, and if there's one thing I don't believe in, it's you, dear God. That's a song that she sings. Wow, you just said that song in church. We don't talk like that in church. That's blasphemous. But that's real. It may be happening to you. We have to approach our trials with faith. The other approach is to refuse to acknowledge the God we know exists because He has not ordered the creation the way we should have. And some people live literally the entirety of their lives angry at God because they know He exists, they know He is real, and yet He has allowed these things to happen. And if that's the, if God, if that's the way you're going to play it, I am not going to participate. And so they live lives of bitterness. Neither of these approaches works. Rejecting the existence of God doesn't solve anything. It only makes it worse for you. Because now you have these ideas of fair and right and just, but you have no justification for even having those ideas because you're an accident. You could be here or you could not. Your life doesn't matter at all. So don't talk about fairness. Fairness is something that you came up with in your own mind without God. Nor is bitterness an option. It's simply sticking one's head in the sand. It's putting your fingers in your ears and singing loud to, drop, to drown it out. Job points the way through trials, and that way is through faith. Faith in what we know to be true. Faith that when every other resource is taken from us, our skills, our money, our ingenuity, our relationships, our good old American sweat equity, when every other option is taken away, we've got to turn to faith in God. What does that mean? What, what, what does that faith look like? Faith, that faith means, first of all, understanding that you are not in control. Some of us have to be in control. We have a desperate need to be in control, to try to, to try to work the situation out. But the problem is, you are so finite, and I am so finite. There is not a thing that any of us can do in the face of the universe to manipulate circumstances. We are utterly helpless. But it's not just enough to understand that you're not in control. Because there are plenty of people who have given up the idea of God and have given up the idea that, that anyone is in the wheel or that, that is at the wheel. 
We've got to submit ourselves to God. There is an element of submission in faith. You're, admit, you're understanding that you're not in control. Then there's an element of submission. Because some of us are at the place where I know I'm not in control, but I sure wish you weren't either. We have to submit ourselves to God and submit ourselves like Job did in the face of piece of evidence after piece of evidence after piece of evidence that there is no way our finite minds can understand what's going on. Thirdly, we have to believe what we know to be true rather than what we feel. And let me just be honest with you. Too many of us, and I include myself, are controlled by our feelings. We are slaves to our feelings. And they affect our responses to the situations that we face in life. And what we know to be true doesn't impact us and it doesn't end up changing the way we live because we don't feel it. Well, chuck the feeling. I know it hurts and we suffer and we have pain, but we have got to find a way to remind ourselves that we have to believe what we know to be true. If you are not prepared to suffer with faith, then you aren't prepared to suffer. And suffering is going to happen. It just is. But faith is not enough. Lots of people say, I've got my faith to get me through. Mere faith is not enough. Some people use the term faith to refer to uh, a general feeling that all will work out okay in the end. Believers don't have that kind of faith. Which brings us to our second point, the one that Job makes. Believers approach suffering with faith in a living God. Job says in in verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. And this is really where Job's words shine and swell to a crescendo that I hope our, our, our hearts will echo. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job's expressing faith in a living God who he has confidence is able to act on his behalf. And before we try to understand this with our New Testament glasses on, Let's try to understand this phrase as Job would have understood it. Remember, he lived hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ would ever be born. He knew there was a Messiah coming, but it would have been an incredible thing for Job to know that, that God would become flesh and live with us. That's, that's something that he may have had, if he understood at all, a very small concept of it. So what does Job mean? Well, the first thing that we have to do to arrive at what Job means is understanding this word redeemer. The word redeemer is used a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. It's used to refer to someone called a kinsman redeemer. And this kinsman redeemer usage of the word was primarily a commercial or a legal term. Remember, society back in these days, when there's a legal issue something that needs to be done, and a a grievance that needs to be addressed. They can't pick up the phone and and dial 1-800-CALL-SAM and get the Bernstein advantage. They've got to handle things more in-house. And so, when certain legal 
issues would come up for a particular family member, someone else in the family had the responsibility to act on their behalf. That person was called a kinsman redeemer. Here are just a few examples of what a kinsman redeemer would do in the Old Testament. A kinsman redeemer could secure justice for a murdered family member. Numbers 35.19 says the avenger of blood. That's the same word, redeemer, that that, uh, Job uses. That's the same word that's used here. It's translated avenger of blood. Shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. He shall put him to death. If anyone with malice aforethought shoves another or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death. He is a murderer. What we're not talking about here, and what the Bible isn't talking about here, is revenge killing. What the Bible is talking about here is justice. The kinsman redeemer had also the responsibility, if able, to secure freedom from capture or voluntary slavery. There are certain times in the life of a person back then where when they fell on hard times, they could voluntarily sell themselves into slavery. What that would basically mean is they would work for someone else. They would sell themselves to someone else to work for room and board. And it was a responsibility after some point into that for someone from the family who had the ability to do so to purchase that person back from slavery, to get them out of debt, basically. The kinsman redeemer also had responsibility to secure children for a deceased family member. Aren't we glad some customs have gone away? But that's the plot line of the book of Ruth. Ruth is with her mother-in-law. She has no husband. They have no way of supporting themselves. And it's this whole story about Boaz, a kinsman redeemer who sees Ruth and falls in love with her and, and realizes that he has the ability to, to redeem her, to take care of her. And so he does that. And they end up having King David in their line and ultimately Jesus in their line. This is the work of a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. There are various kinds of legal and commercial aspects to this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Now Job obviously feels wronged. He's crying out for justice. But I don't think that what Job is asking for in this passage is a human kinsman redeemer. In most of your translations of the scripture, Redeemer is capitalized with a capital R, meaning that he is referring to God. And what Job is saying is, though God has afflicted me, and though I have suffered, and though in some way God has allowed this to happen, I am appealing to that same living God who I know can act on my behalf to bring justice to me. And that brings us to the second way that the word is used throughout the Old Testament. In the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible, it's got a commercial legal aspect, and it usually refers to a human being. But there are also several other times throughout Scripture when God takes the term for himself. I've been having problems with this thing all morning. That's what happens when you get a rookie. It's going to happen again, so just be ready for that. God takes the term redeemer and applies it to himself throughout the Old Testament. It's this rich picture that he borrows of this human transaction that takes place and says, 
says, I will be that for you. And so David, in the Psalms, refers to God as his rock and his redeemer. God is referred to in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, as the redeemer who brings his people out of the bondage of slavery. In Isaiah 43, 1-3, again God is referred to as Redeemer, this time talking about getting His people out of captivity in Babylon. He says, but now this is what the Lord says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And it was to God as Redeemer and Savior, a living God, living and active God, that Job cries out in these verses in faith. One person put it this way, Job reaches beyond his experience of God's wrath to state his trust in God who will in time secure his acquittal and who will also accomplish his deliverance from suffering. In this passage, Job is expressing genuine faith for he makes an unconditional affirmation about God's commitment to him against all circumstantial evidence to the contrary. It's his, his, his hope and faith in God is unconditional. It is not conditioned by what's going on in his life, and it is horrible. He's looking to God as a living Redeemer. And while it is true that Job may, have not, may not have been looking to Jesus the way we are looking to Jesus, this beautiful passage points forward to our need for Jesus. And the fact that throughout the New Testament, Jesus is presented to us as our Redeemer. Why can you have faith in a living Redeemer? Why can you have faith in a living God? Let me introduce you to Jesus. If you have a moment, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Because I want to tell you about Jesus. Why should we look to Jesus? Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that we can look to Jesus because Jesus suffered too. If you're in Hebrews chapter 2, if you're not, that's fine, but I'm going to read a couple of verses to you talking about Jesus' suffering. Verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. Lest you think that you are alone in this, God suffered too. God identifies with you in your suffering And He doesn't identify with you in your suffering from a distance. It is not mere empathy that God extends to you. God became flesh and experienced suffering too. 
can have faith in a living God who knows what it's like to suffer and saved you at great personal cost to himself. It pleased God to make our salvation perfect or complete. The way through, the way to salvation, the road went right through suffering. It happened that way for Jesus and it happens that way for us as well. You can trust in Jesus, not only because he suffered, but because he has purchased us from slavery. Just as the Old Testament kinsman redeemer could redeem or purchase back that family member who had sold themselves into slavery, the Bible tells us that Jesus is our Redeemer and that He has purchased us from the slavery of sin. Verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 2 say this, Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by His death He might destroy Him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery. Job pointed to Jesus, our Redeemer, who buys us back from the slavery of sin. Jesus is also the vindicator that Job pointed us to. Look at verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Jesus stands before God and declares us righteous. Why? Because we are righteous? No. He stands before God and declares us righteous because He died to secure that right. And when those around us may look at us and wonder, what did they ever do? Or when we question our own selves, and wonder, what did I ever do? Jesus stands before God vindicating us as a living Redeemer. The last thing I'll point out from this passage, the reason that we can look to Jesus is because Jesus is our brother. Can you believe that? Verses 11 and 12. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers or sisters. God describes himself in family terms to us, doesn't he? Father and son. But not only does he reveal himself to us in family terms, but he accepts us as family in Christ. That we could be called children of God. That Jesus Christ could be our brother and that he would be unashamed to say so. That's the living Redeemer that you and I need to put our faith in. Not faith in faith. Not faith that it's all going to work out but faith in a living Redeemer who has already done so much to tell us how much He cares. What more could He do? Why do we doubt when suffering comes? Finally, and we'll be quick, believers approach suffering with faith in a living God who will not Abandon 
his people. Job expresses in these last two verses, verses 26 and 27, the fact that he is absolutely certain that God will not abandon him. In fact, Job expresses the certainty that he is going to see with his own two eyes God remembering him and coming back for him and vindicating him. What Job meant by that is not exactly clear. Perhaps he was thinking in verse 26 when he says, let me turn back here. Perhaps he was thinking in verse 26 when he says, my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Perhaps he's thinking he's going to die, but he's certain of, certain of future resurrection. He will see God vindicate him. Perhaps he's saying that. It's unclear though whether he would have known what we know in the, in the fullness of revelation, the doctrine of resurrection that we now enjoy. That's a pillar of, of our Christian faith. It's unclear to us whether Job would have known that. I don't know. I can't answer that. It could just mean that he's referring to the sickness of his flesh and his skin. The book of Job tells us he had boils all over his body. He's sitting in, a, in, a, in an ash heap. It could just be that he was looking forward to God coming before him and vindicating him right there, that with his own eyes he would see God. We don't know exactly what he means, but we do know that that's what happened. God appears to Job in a storm and reveals what I've already shared with you from those last few chapters of Job. And what does this mean for you and me? One person put it this way, the lesson that suffering does not show that God is alienated is one of the most enduring themes of the book. And if you are sitting here today thinking that perhaps you have been abandoned by God, let me urge you to take the approach that Job took. You have not been abandoned. Psalm 37 verse 25 says, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. You have not been abandoned by God. In fact, Jesus Christ was abandoned by God for you. You will never fully experience the abandonment that you could ultimately receive. Because death and hell is many things, but part of it is, is the complete abandonment by God. Jesus experienced that abandonment on the cross. And he said from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Up to that point, he had never known unbroken fellowship with the Father. But he did there. Jesus Christ was abandoned so that you don't have to be abandoned. God has not abandoned you in your suffering. You have a living Redeemer who is here with you. And if you have any doubt of that, listen to these words from Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, where the Bible says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, 
or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you say amen to that this morning? So if you are here as a believer, don't have the answers for suffering. I don't know why, and you don't either. And Pat Robertson doesn't either. But if you will lay a hold of faith in a living Redeemer who has not abandoned you, you will see your way through suffering. And if you're here this morning and you have not found your way, I said earlier that suffering is general, happens to everyone. But if you're not here in Christ and you don't know Christ, there is a sense in which God's wrath does rest on you. And my question to you is, what would prevent you from today responding in faith to Jesus? What prevents you from doing that? Believe. Lord, I thank you for these ancient words. And I thank you for Job. And I thank you that you have shown us by your suffering and death and abandonment that you've experienced for us in our behalf that the suffering we experience here, though difficult and terrible and excruciating, is but momentary in light of the future glories that we will share with you forever and ever. And I pray that we would be encouraged by that this morning. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.